Hi, my name is Chris Little, and I am the host of The Lifestyle Chase. In 2018, I started this show to have meaningful conversations. I've interviewed over a hundred different people, both in and out of the fitness industry. This podcast is something I'm incredibly proud of. Welcome to season four. Thanks for joining me. All right, so welcome to the Lifestyle Chase. Today is episode 210, and I have brought to the show the one and only Jenny Rurick. Did I get your last name right? You did. Perfect, perfect. How are you doing today? I'm great. How about yourself? Not too shabby, as we were chit-chatting about before we started recording. It's a Monday. Like, I mean, it's it's never a bad way to start a day with, like, a podcast mm-hmm. interview. Um, so in the last, like, well, like, let's reflect on the weekend and over the weekend, what's something that kind of stood out to you that got your attention and made you see things differently? Oh, I traveled to Portland this weekend for a wedding and I live in Northern California. It has not, well, until the last two weeks, it has not rained in California where I, February. I believe of this year. And I went to Portland and it downpoured every minute that I was in Portland and it made me appreciate the seasons a bit more. So that's something that stood out to me was getting out of my element a little bit, traveling somewhere new and experiencing Portland for what it is, the rainy, rainy, a rainy city. <laughs> I like that. And it was kind of, it was an interesting question that I sort of sprung on you, but I think it's a good segue into what you do and how you do it. So let's talk to that. Like my audience might not know who you are. And mm-hmm. so to introduce you to people who may not have met you before, what do you do? Like what, what are the things that you bring to your space that you're most proud of? Yes, I am a communication and presentation skills coach. I work with corporate professionals and then through my own company that I call fit to speak I coach other trainers, coaches, anyone that would consider themselves a fitness, sport, or health professional, how to elevate their field by making contributions through anything that involves communication public speaking, presentations, written communication. That's what I do. I love it. One of the things that kind of stood out about you that sort of drew me to get you on the show is because I think communication is such like an undervalued tool in the toolbox. I think Mm -hmm. everybody has a lot of room to grow with regards to how they communicate um, and their communication skills. What was the moment in your career where you first kind of uh, started reining in on this specific area of your expertise? Yeah, great question. I, previous to doing this, I ran project management teams at advertising agencies. I, my job, the success of my role was completely dependent on my ability to create open communication through lots of different people who had competing priorities. During my time in that role, I took a presentation skills course. And once I went back to my job, I began to apply what I had learned and it immediately 
changed for the better. My relationships with the people I was interacting with, I experienced fewer meetings because I was more effective in the way I was sharing information in meetings. And I just got a better response from people when I was asking them to do things or when I was giving them information that was going to help them be better at their job. Once I experienced it firsthand, I realized that communication and presentation skills is something that we all do in our roles, some of us more than others, but every single person that has a job has to communicate and share information. And yet most of us in our educational background, we've never been taught how to be more effective doing it. There's this assumption that because we talk, we're good communicators and because we're experienced at talking, why should we have to develop these skills? But just like any other skill, it's something that can be practiced, taught, practiced, and developed. And so that's what I, when I decided to pursue it full time, because I, in my own life, I saw the impact that it had on my career and I wanted to help others experience the same. So you kind of spoke about your experience learning it firsthand and like how you took the course. What were the things about the course that like uh, kind of screamed out at you? and made you think like, wow, like this is a game changer. What are the things that you kind of recall from that first uh, educational moment? The thing that stands out most is how much your body language and the way you use your voice impacts how people receive the information you're, they're giving, you're giving to them, excuse me. I am naturally an introvert. So I found when I was speaking to groups of people there was a lot of my focus was on myself, how maybe uncomfortable I felt. I was wondering, are people going to like me? Am I saying the right thing? Am I going to mess up? And instead, once I took the course, what it allowed me to do was channel that energy away from myself and into skills that I could control to affect how I was being perceived by the people I was interacting with. It Indirectly, it reduced, greatly reduced the level of anxiety I felt communicating both one-on-one and in groups simply because I had somewhere to channel that energy. Whereas before, I didn't know what I could control necessarily about my communication and this gave me some place to put it or take control of. Well, I like all the the takeaways that I've gotten from that so far, like this whole topic of like the tone of voice, your body language and uh, introversion has been something that's been very present in my day to day work um, in the, the rise in online coaching in the rise in zoom calls, zoom training, all these things. Um, when it comes to body language and uh, vocal tone. What are some things that pop out to you with what we have control of or just things that have come up in your work in this area? Mm -hmm. I Well, it differs if you're communicating in person or virtually. So I'll name a few things in person because that's how many of us typically communicate. And hopefully post-COVID, we will get back to a scenario that's much more personal and a lot less digital. In person, the most important thing you can do is make meaningful eye contact with the people you're speaking to. 
When we speak to more than one or two people, we automatically we go into a fight or flight response because we feel outnumbered by the people we're speaking to. And we become aware of the fact that not just one person is judging us, but multiple people are now judging us. The way our body responds, or at least our eye contact, is when we start to talk, we scan our eyes, which means instead of looking at the people I'm speaking to, I kind of glaze over them and I look around the space because it's intimidating to make eye contact with the people you're speaking to. However, what I've learned is that not only does it help those people perceive you as composed and confident, you just feel more settled to them. It also limits the amount of stimulus that your brain is having to process because instead of looking around the entire space and at all of these people at once, you're only focusing on just one other person. And although it's somewhat counterintuitive, that's a that's the style of communicating we're almost comfortable with, which is one-on-one. So if you are speaking to, let's say, six people, instead of trying to look at all six people at once, focus only on one of those people at a time as if you're having a one-on-one conversation with them. Not only will you feel more comfortable because it will feel a lot like a one-on-one conversation, but to each of those people, you're you're much more engaging because you're connecting with them on an individual level. So if I was going to teach people one thing that they should control in person for their communication or speaking skills, it would be to start making meaningful eye, direct eye contact with each of the individual people that you're speaking to. I love that. Um, what about like talking with our hands? I used to be so self-conscious of talking with my hands a lot. And then over the last year or so, I've realized that that's actually like a trait that a lot of people find builds trust or either builds like sort of a person's perceived level of how experienced that person is. So if I'm speaking to a topic and my hands are moving a lot and being very expressive, I might give off like a vibe that I really know what I'm talking about. Like what, what are your thoughts when it comes to that kind of stuff? Yeah, you hit it spot on. I have people that come to me and say, I need your help. I gesture way too much when I speak. And I, my response to them is always that they've come to the wrong place because I coach everyone I work with to gesture more. I I've been doing this now full time for over four years. I think there's been one person in the thousands of people I've worked with both in the corporate space and in the fitness space that I've told they gesture too much. And the only reason I told them that was they have a in background in theater and their gestures were highly manipulate, manipulated or calculated and they didn't come across as genuine. Gestures are important for a couple of reasons. The first, if you're thinking selfishly, when you move your hands as you speak, it actually helps you recall your words faster. Movement is tied to your cognitive abilities. It's the same reason why we think better when we go on walks, because movement and the brain are tied together. Gesturing when you're speaking can help your verbal fluency. It can help you remember your words quicker. 
The second reason, as you hit on, is that it simply makes you more interesting to watch, listen to. When people listen to us speak, their attention is drawn to three things, light, color, and motion. If you're speaking to them and they see you gesturing, you're naturally going to catch their attention because they see motion going on. And then you back it up, hopefully, with an interest, something interesting to say. And then the third reason, more subtly, is gestures help our listeners understand the underlying context or the meaning of what we're trying to say because they express something that's abstract where our words cannot do that. So it fills the gap that people aren't directly able to get through our words, but if when we show them our gestures, they get an understanding of what's going on in our head and the picture we're trying to paint. So gestures are great. If I was talking about the technical aspects of gesturing, you want to gesture up high, meaning above your waist. Because when you draw people's attention to your body, you want it to be at your upper body because that's where the words are coming out. A lot of people, if they feel uncomfortable gesturing, they'll usually leave their arms down by their sides and gesture below their belt. But I don't want to draw people's attention down below my belt because hopefully there's nothing interesting going on there. So when I gesture, I want to pick my hands up and gesture around my waist or closer to my chest because that's where I want people to be paying attention to is what's going on up top. And they can then notice my facial expressions as well. I love that. Um, so you got me thinking with your experience, both in like the coaching setting and the corporate setting, like what was your start like in the corporate setting? Like um, just the first period of time when you're working in that environment, um, the lessons that came up working in that environment and maybe things that you've transferred on to coaches with your work with coaches. That's the first time someone's asked me that. I love it. Lessons I've learned in the biggest one. And I've talked about this before on my fit to speak channels is the confidence to be a chameleon. And what I mean by that is so often we go into our professional lives, but this is especially true in a corporate setting and people feel like they have to be a certain way to fit in and be successful. The problem with that is, is there's no one right way to be yourself. And there are many different aspects of your personality, all of which can benefit you in certain scenarios. You will be most successful professionally when you begin to identify each of those aspects of your personality and then fine tune them during certain scenarios for some things to stand out and some things to maybe hide. Let me give an example. If I go in to coach a corporate group on their presentation or communication skills, which I do full-time, my level of professionalism is much more formal than it is when I go in to coach a group of trainers at a gym. That's because it's context-dependent. There is There are aspects of my personality that are going to help me build rapport and gain the respect of a corporate audience that are much different than the aspects of my personality that are going to achieve those same things with a group of trainers or coaches. So often people get stuck in 
being one specific type of person in all scenarios and it doesn't serve them well, but they feel like if they change who they are in different scenarios, they're not being true to themselves. And that's just not how our personalities work. There's a reason why we have multiple aspects of our personality and that's so that we can be a chameleon and fit in to the different expectations or demands of the professional scenarios we find ourselves in. I like that takeaway because like, honestly, the the whole chameleon idea is something that I have to embody in my day-to-day career. I wear about four different hats right now. Um, and I am in all kinds of different work environments around all kinds of different people doing all kinds of different roles. And I can understand how a person would almost feel like if they changed the way that they kind of compose themselves in a different environment that they might be straying away from in authenticity, I understand how they're able to mean their authenticity, but how would you reframe it to someone who might have kind of doubts about the direction that they're going with things? Mm -hmm. The way, well, the, all I can speak to is how I frame it. And that is understanding and appreciating that I'm not one type of person. And I've seen the different aspects of my personality come out. And what I do is when that happens, instead of seeing that as I'm not being genuine to myself, I celebrate the fact that I had the confidence to adjust my personality so that I could be successful in this specific scenario. And once you can become aware of all of those aspects of your personality and you identify what they are, then you can be more conscious or intentional about which ones you bring out and which ones you don't bring out before you even enter a situation. If, if I'm going up on stage to speak to a group of professionals, before I walk out on the stage, I am going to decide what aspects of my personality do I want to come across? Do I want to sound playful and conversational? Or do I want to sound more academic in nature and have a more serious tone? Once I decide on how I want to be perceived, that will then tell me what aspects of my personality I want to come out. So to in terms of reframing, I don't know that it's necessarily about reframing. It's more so understanding that you have multiple different aspects of your personality and the Every situation you find yourself in demands that each of those be played up or played down. And that's going to be different than another scenario that you find yourself in. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think self-awareness is going to be pretty important for people within that. Like just having the awareness that they have multiple different um, qualities or strengths that they can um, express and that the people that they are in front of might relate to just one of them or mm -hmm. one more than the other kind of thing. And just having that self-awareness to know, okay, like what is the right thing to bring out in this environment? Like I liked how you talked about like the, the playfulness versus the sort of like the sense of academia um, because that matters. That makes a big difference. Um, it kind of segues into the next question that actually I got asked in one of my Instagram stories and it was, um, what are your thoughts on first impressions? And before I get you to answer, I'll share what my answer essentially was. For me, 
first impressions, I've often been wrong with them. Mm -hmm. I've often, um, something about that person, I misread it, or I didn't give it enough time to kind of figure them out. And as time has gone on, and I've met more and more people, I've learned to kind of like, kind of sit with that connection a bit longer and ask more probing questions and take more time to observe. Because in most cases, the instances where I've misread a person, they've turned out to be one of my biggest allies in the industry or in my life. Um, so I've realized the value of taking more time. But I'll turn the table over to you. What are, what are your thoughts on first impressions? Okay, well, I have a, I'll answer by asking you a question. If you had the choice, would you want to create a positive first impression or a negative first impression? I think every time that I'm in a situation, I'm going with the bias that my impression is going to be positive, okay. but I'm learning that not every time what I think is positive is actually positive, you know? Okay. Yes. But the intention is there when we know that first impressions are important because we also judge other people by our first impressions. And if we judge other people, we know that other people are judging us. The, the reason why a first impression is so important is because that first impression becomes a lens for how that person takes in everything that comes after that first impression. If I have a negative first impression of you, everything that you share with me or the interactions we have, I'm going to filter through that negative first impression. That is not to say you can't come back from a negative first impression, like you said, if I spend time with you, I have more experiences with you. Maybe I meet some people that have a positive impression of you. Then over time, my impression will likely change. However, I want to create a positive first impression because then I don't have to climb out of a hole or dig myself out of a hole with people. I can just simply build on a strong start and all the information I'm sharing with people will be viewed through that positive light and they're more likely to be agreeable with me, listen to my opposing points of view because they don't see me as a threat and things like that. Now, you hinted at the fact that we can't necessarily control how other people end up perceiving us. I can go in and set an intention and say, this is how I want to be perceived. But in the end, that person's personality, their personal history, history that they have with people that they feel are like me, that will all impact how they're perceiving me, whether I realize it or not. Now, although I can't control everything, I can absolutely control what I do and how I present myself in those moments to increase the likelihood that I'm going to create a positive first impression. The things that I do are when I meet people, I make sure I am fully present with those people. I'm not on my phone. If I'm having a conversation, I'm not chasing distractions while I'm speaking to them. I'm making eye contact. I'm asking a lot of questions as opposed to talking about myself. I'm trying to uncover things about that person that I can grab onto and create conversation with. There's one, I talk a lot about 
starting principles of communication. And the one that I go by that I found has been extremely beneficial is when you meet somebody, you should treat them as if they're the most important person in the world. Now, although that's not true, usually, it doesn't mean that I can't take on that mindset. And typically, if I have that frame of mind when I meet people, I will create a positive first impression because they will feel important. And if they feel important, they will like me because I make them feel good about themselves. I thought that was awesome. There's a lot that can be taken from that. Um, something that I've recently learned is like sometimes with with social media, with how much we can perceive of a person that we don't exactly know or just the level of uh, communication that can go around about a person that was never direct. I've learned that something really important when it comes to networking is to just only go off of the things that you know about people directly, the things that you've experienced firsthand, um, and build from there. And I like that you talked about like um, treating that interaction like they're the most important person in the world, because I can totally see how like a person would then respond to that in a very positive way. Like people hearing their name, people um, seeing like a twinkle in that other person's eye or a smile or the tone of their voice while they're smiling all those things I think make a huge difference and I think like even though I might with me and setting impressions or receiving impressions I might have this level of like realism based on past experiences that is no way an obstacle from me making a change going forward and having like a focus on the things that I can control similar to a person like uh, trying to get into exercise regularly rather than focusing on like a 12 week program, just focusing on one day and like doing like three different exercises for like 12 sets or something like that. Um, But with regards to all of that, I want to take us into the time machine as I often do on this show. Um, What was life like for you 10 years ago what was going on then just kind of give our audience some perspective on like the greater part of of your your career etc 10 years ago 10 years ago I was in my mid-20s I was living and working in Chicago which is where I'm from Uh, I was working at an ad agency running a project management team On the side, I was coaching CrossFit, which is, so I played sports, I played volleyball through college. And once I graduated, there was a big void of not being in something competitive. So outside of my job in advertising, I started doing CrossFit. I, being an athlete and having done a lot of weightlifting in college, I was pretty good at it. And I ended up moving into a coaching role, which I loved much more than even doing CrossFit. So I started to get into getting into Olympic weightlifting. So I would go in and coach a morning class at 530. I would go to work for my nine to five, and then I would usually coach an evening class. So I was kind of straddling this line between being a corporate professional and coaching, which was the best thing that I had ever done because both of those jobs, although almost on the opposite end of the spectrum, they both helped me be better in the other. My coaching, all the coaching I was doing 
helped me be better in my corporate career because I felt much more comfortable standing up in front of people and educating them on things that were going on at work. I had a lot more confidence having an opinion and interacting with people because that's what a coach does as you're just teaching and interacting all the time. And then being a corporate professional helped me be a better coach because it developed those professional skills of being buttoned up, understanding how to navigate and build rapport with people. That's something that's critical in a corporate role. So that's what I was doing 10 years ago, straddling the line between the corporate and the fitness space, which is still what I'm doing now. It just looks a little bit different. Mm -hmm. With regards to living in two sort of different worlds, as it were, um, how do you assess your personal bandwidth? Like, how do you know where the line is as to like how much you have the capacity for? Um, We'll leave it at that. And then I'll ask follow-up questions as we kind of go further. Okay. I would answer that by just using the word boundaries. When I was, when I had my full-time corporate job and then I was coaching on the side, my number one priority was my corporate job. I was on a salary. There were expectations that I had to meet if I wanted to keep that job. That means I, if something came up on in the coaching role and it conflicted with something in my corporate job, I would always choose the corporate job in the, at that time because of job security, which I think is true for all of us. If you have something you're doing on the side for a long time, that side project has to take a backseat to whatever your main priority is. Even though maybe I wanted to spend more time coaching, it wasn't how it was going to play out at that point in my life. Now, in my corporate job, when I took that role during the interview process, I made sure to communicate that I had hobbies and things that I wanted to do outside of work. And I needed to know that they would be supportive of me doing those activities because that's what would allow me to bring my best self to work. If I had to give up those things in order to take this job, then it wasn't a a job that I wanted to have. And I would look elsewhere for someplace that would allow me to do both. Going in and being honest with them about what I wanted worked really well. They respected my time. I was able to leave work certain days of the week to go coach classes and there was no pushback from them. But that really came down to my willingness to set clear expectations from the beginning and make sure that I was transparent about what my priorities were and how I envisioned that playing out over the course of me working for them. I think the number one mistake I see professionals make is they take on a lot of different tasks or maybe they're working multiple jobs. Maybe some of them are side hustles or passion projects, but they don't navigate the expectations with the other people who are involved in those projects. So everyone expects that person to bring and give everything they have to this one project, not knowing that they're also working on something on the side. I think it's important in all regards professionally to be open and honest with those around you about where your time is going and why it's important that you distribute your time in the way that you've chosen to. 
there's a lot to take from that and i liked that you talked about like setting expectations and like almost like painting a picture i mean in my own personal experience i found it to be very helpful anybody that has like a a stake in my time um is looped into everything involved in my time and it varies it changes sometimes it's passion projects sometimes it's uh very serious commitments but the more that they know the less like i i like to go into situations with nothing to hide like mm -hmm. no matter who i am talking to it doesn't necessarily need to be advertised on social media but if mm -hmm. anybody who has stake in my time um that's paying for it they they get to know everything involved because then they have a clear picture as to uh how to get more of my time or why my time might be limited, etc. Um, but with that, there's often that like fine line of like, where do we need to, to fill our cup? Where do we need to recharge and how are we going to do that? So what's that part of your life like? Yeah, I need to do more of that. I'm in, a, I'm in a place where I have a, I have a full-time job. I work, I train and coach corporate professionals on their communication and presentation skills. I work with large companies to do corporate trainings. That takes up probably 30, 30 hours of my week. And then, as you know, I'm also trying to build my business, which is fit to speak in which I'm doing the same thing, but for fitness, sport and health professionals, I'm in a time in my career where I don't, want to necessarily step back and take time off because I'm trying to build a business. And I know that that is going to take a consistent effort for a couple of years before I feel like I can maybe take a little bit of a break or at least slow down my schedule. Now, with that said, I am also aware, well aware of that I can't build my business if I am not mentally and physically healthy. So one thing that I do is I know that exercise or strength training energizes me. And it's something that is really meditative because when I'm in the gym, I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm thinking about my form, which to me is a form of meditation. So I make sure that every day I can do at least 30 minutes of exercise. That's something that's non-negotiable to me. And that's a form for me of self Care. And I also do jujitsu. So I go twice a week on certain days and times. What I do to protect that time is I block it off on my calendar and I commit to not letting anything take precedent over that. And it doesn't. Or if there is something that's going to take precedent, I make sure that I take the time to appreciate that this is a choice I'm making to sacrifice that self-care time because it benefits me in some other way. But it's for anybody that is feels overwhelmed and they're trying to balance their time, I think the number one thing is you need to find those one or two activities that energize you. If that's exercise, if that's taking a nap, if that's going for a walk, and make sure that you block that time off on your calendar and make it as routine as possible, and then you protect it so you're not making decisions based off of emotion. It's just, uh, oh, uh, Tuesdays at one o'clock, that's always booked. 
now it's a non-decision. It's already there. Whereas if week by week, I'm just totally flexible with my time, I'll let everybody else decide how my time is used and I'm not going to be the one deciding how my time is used. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot that people can take from that. One of the things that I really liked is how you highlighted how you block out time for your non-negotiables. The busier a person gets, the more essential that is. Um, for myself, I have one role that takes up 35 hours a week, another one that takes up about 10 hours, another one that's about 15 hours and another one that's about 10 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have found myself actually having to block out like a chunk of six hours, um, mm-hmm. and setting like some really, really firm boundaries, like more than ever. Usually I am the kind of person that lets another person, um, tell me what I'm doing for the day. During those six hours, that does not happen. And like it can upset some people or uh, make some people feel inadequate. But for myself, I need that in order to sustain like this momentum that I'm trying to carry forward. And I've got a very similar mindset in the sense that like this isn't going to be who I am forever. (laughs) This will be me for like the next year, year and a half as I kind of build up momentum in areas that have a lot of meaning to me. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you sort of figure out the direction that you want to go with your goals? Like, do you use any kind of a tracking system or a spreadsheet or a vision board or what, what does that look like for you? I don't have, I don't have any goals. I, I'm just not somebody that has, necessarily ever set tangible goals. It's not something that motivates me. I, what I've done is I've navigated my way to a career that I'm just genuinely interested in. So I could work seven days a week on communication and presentation skills, and it doesn't feel like work to me. I absolutely love it. Because of that, I get a lot done with my work, I get the chance to work with a lot of people. I have consistent cl- a consistent client base. I'm motivated to produce content. If I ever get to a place where those things start to slow down or I'm feeling less energized about what I'm doing, then I'll probably take a step back and ask what about this career has changed to where I no longer feel energized by it. But I think for me, the number one thing that I look for is to be energized by whatever I'm doing. And if I know I'm energized, then I know I'm producing good work and I'm being productive. And that to me is my goal is to be productive and to be enjoying the work that I'm doing. Now I hear, I've heard the career advice that you should do what you love. I think that's terrible advice because if you had met me five years ago, I would never have guessed that I would be teaching and coaching communication and presentation skills. I had nothing, I had done nothing related to communication and presentation skills, at least directly before I took that course. So I don't think that all of us are lucky enough to know exactly what we want to do and what we're passionate about. I think it's just a matter of being willing to do different jobs and saying yes to opportunities that don't on the surface look like something you'll enjoy, because those are usually where you find things that you do love, or you meet someone on that pursuit that connects you with something that you end up doing. 
I think it's all chance. So instead of goals, what I do is I just say yes to things that I think I'll enjoy doing. And those usually lead me down productive paths from a career standpoint. I mean, I think something that people can observe in what you do and what you shared on this episode is that your income streams are diversified. Mm -hmm. You're not just like a, a one trick pony kind of thing. Like there are multiple things that you do and you've had the willingness and capacity to do multiple things. And I feel that having structure in one area feeds into the, the buy-in in another area. So if you have structure in the corporate space, it can contribute positively to the, the coaching space. And if someone wasn't in that same position, maybe the structure in jujitsu could uh, contribute to the uh, buy-in with, with their coaching of others. So it's just mm -hmm. like, hopefully people take that step back to realize maybe it's, it's not as complicated as it seems. It's just a matter of adding another layer to their life to um, give them a different perspective, give them new lessons, and give them new avenues to connect with others sort of thing. That's right. And I to build on that, Every, every scenario I find myself in, I'm constantly asking the question, what can I take from this scenario and use it to make me a better communication or presentation skills coach? What does this have to do with communication and presentation skills? And even taking that lens allows me to immerse myself in scenarios that I necessarily maybe wouldn't have enjoyed otherwise. And I think that's something that coaches can do too. If you are a coach or you're a trainer, every situation that you're in, if you, even if it has nothing to do with training, or maybe you're reading a book that has nothing to do with training, there are opportunities in those scenarios and in those books or those resources you're interacting with that you can translate and connect back to coaching somehow. And just that simple, having that mindset that everything that you're doing and somehow relates to coaching will open you up to enjoying experiences that may have otherwise felt arduous or maybe something that you had to do as opposed to something you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. Um, one of the things that has been very uh, present in your speaking on this interview, which I want people to notice is how you have inserted pauses into your your responses and the way you're speaking is something that I think I've seen a few times in your content. Um, and it's something that I think a lot of people could benefit from. Sometimes I catch myself thinking that I need to be fitting more into an increment of space or else people think that I'm incompetent or that I don't know what I'm talking about. And then I'll listen to myself after and realize like uh, the our sense of time in our head when we're expressing our thoughts is much different than the actual outcome. So talk more on that. Like what, what are your um, biggest key points on that? A pause. Pausing when you're speaking is what I use to create impact around the things that I'm saying. And also it is a habit that has replaced filler words. Filler words, when I tell people what I do, the number one question I get is how do I stop saying um or like or so? And all it is is getting comfortable 
taking pauses in silence. Now, as you said, pausing in silence feels terribly awkward because we think that if we stop talking, people are going to think we don't know what we're talking about or we're going to bore them because we're going a little bit slower. But when we speak, it's important to remember that that's the first time these people are ever hearing what you're saying, even though maybe this is something that you talk about or think about all the time like me talking about communication skills. If I don't add pauses between the things that I'm saying or speak at a pace that's easy to take in, people are going to remember very little about what I'm telling them because I'm never giving them the physical space they need to digest and internalize and reflect on what I've just said. When you pause in silence, people are not just there waiting for you to say what comes next. What they're doing is they're using that pause you've given them to reflect on what you just told them. The way I posted this today on my Instagram account, the way that I teach people how to pause is when we speak, there are always natural breaks in what we're saying. If I was writing what I was verbalizing to you right now, there I would be putting commas and periods, semicolons, punctuation in my writing. When we speak, we need to use punctuation just like we do when we write. Punctuation in speaking is a pause in silence. When I'm speaking, anywhere where I get to where I might put a comma or a period, I use that as an opportunity to pause momentarily in silence to let them know that that's where a natural break is happening. And over the course of me doing it while I'm speaking, I'll create a medium speaking pace, which will make me much easier to follow along with. I sound more confident in what I'm saying. I don't sound rushed. And those are the, those are the benefits to doing it. It's a difficult habit to develop, but it's, it's necessary and you'll sound more intelligent because you'll use less filler words, which don't help you sound intelligent. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely say that if a person goes back and listens to the earlier episodes of my show or if they listen to episodes where I was tired, there's a lot of filler words. And that's kind of the that's the tough truth of being better and being open to feedback is you have to be willing to um, face those aspects of the things that you think were perfect and realize your opportunities for growth. Like I often have a lot of things, regardless of the feedback that I receive on the show, I'm able to listen to past episodes and pinpoint areas of myself that I could have definitely improved on, even like with regards to how I host, the questions I ask, the way I speak, um, the way I am paying attention to the guest or not paying attention to the guest, um, it, it's influenced a lot of different things, but you kind of brought up how it is very difficult to start with that pause, to make it a habit. If you were working with someone who truly struggled with that, what would be your strategy to make it easier for them to practice? Well, I coach them. That means if you and I, if I was coaching you, I would have you deliver something to me, speak, whatever that might be. Maybe you were giving a presentation and I had you deliver the presentation. As you were delivering it, every time you used a filler word, I would jump in 
correct you, I would have you go back to the start of the sentence and restate the sentence without the filler word. It, it's a matter of repetition. We, it's a verbal habit. And most people aren't aware of when they're saying it. My job as a coach is to help you bring awareness because if you're aware of when you use filler words, that's when you'll then be able to make the choice of whether it comes out of your mouth or not. Now, you're not going to be very good at it at first, and I'll be coaching you and interjecting a lot. But over time, I won't ever have to interrupt you because you'll stop using them. Another, and, and I use a lot of analogies to help people connect with how to do it because they, people start to ask a lot of technical questions, which get in the way of them actually doing it. And they'll ask, well, how long do I pause? When do I know when to pause? Those aren't questions we need to be asking. It makes it much too complicated. The way, another way I describe pausing is every time you share a thought or a sentence, imagine that there's a stop sign at the end of each of those thoughts or sentences. You have to stop talking and pause, and then you can begin driving again with your next thought or sentence. At the end of that thought or sentence, you'll get to another stop sign. So you need to stop and pause. I found analogies to work best if they can visualize the structure of the speaking and the pausing, as opposed to wondering, is this the right time to pause? Is this the right time to pause? But every time you get to the end of a thought or a sentence, pause. One, two, three seconds. Sometimes I pause as long as five seconds. As you get more comfortable doing it, you'll get comfortable making your pauses longer. But at first, it just needs to be a momentary, just stop talking. I love that. And I especially liked how you highlighted just how it is a coaching thing. Like it is, it is something a person needs to simply put in the repetitions with. Um, sometimes it's, we're looking for situations that are more intricate or complicated and it is simply just do it, see how you did, repeat, see how you did, repeat, and just incremental improvements time after time. And that is why um, people who have, a thousand hours experience versus people who have a hundred hours of experience in any given modality tend to do so with fewer mistakes and fewer hiccups. And it's just a simple reality that you got to put in the reps. Yeah. Well, and the biggest mistake I see people make when they're trying to improve their speaking skills, they'll record themselves or at the end of them, let's say delivering a presentation, they'll ask somebody that was there, give me some feedback. Now, it's great that they're asking for feedback, but to improve your communication skills, at least in the beginning, it requires a fast feedback loop, meaning you want someone to interrupt you so you can do it over in the way that you want to do it. If at the end of this interview, you say, Jenny, give me some feedback. And I said, well, you used um quite often, and I think you can do better. There's not much you can do with that because you can't go back and fix it. Now, you could put some intention behind the next interview, but that might be a while before you're able to do that. That's a benefit of having a coach. Although it's somewhat embarrassing to be told about the habits that you're not aware of when you speak, I would rather know those from someone I'm paying to help me improve than go out in front of my peers 
and use all these filler words, not know I'm using them and nobody telling me that I'm using them. So I never improve. And I'd have to add on that a person's um, chances of improving themselves personally are their willingness to look silly for failure or for stumbling. If you're just simply open to looking silly, um, it's going to help you and go a long way. There's been so many times that I have felt just like an absolute goof. And because of my willingness to just own it, it's helped me out leaps and bounds in, in my career path so far. Um, something that I wanted to bring up as we're bringing this episode to a close was I noticed your recent post about it kind of regards the, the mission of fit to speak, the direction that you want to take things. Um, tell my audience more about that and what you're passionate about with it. Thank you for asking about this. I appreciate that. I just this year, I've run a few programs with fit to speak as I've been somewhat testing the waters of how I want to be working with people. And I've come to the realization that my passion really lies in helping the motivated, intelligent people in our field get get in front of their peers to educate. Based on what I've seen, I've been to lots of conferences. I have lots of friends in the network who speak at conferences. We see the same faces and hear from the same voices over and over and over and over and over again. And this is not a knock to those people. They're there for a reason. They are well-spoken. They have time in the industry to teach us something from their experience. They're very intelligent. But I see a need to build a bigger pool of professionals that can be chosen to speak and educate our peers at industry events. Now, the reason why we don't see different faces and hear from different voices at these industry events is that it's hard to find new people. There are people who are too intimidated to apply or propose to speak, even though they've got something important to say, or they lack in their presentation or speaking skills to the point where these industry events don't necessarily want to bring them in because they're not polished enough. I feel that my skill set and the way I want to serve this fitness sport and health fields is to develop those minor league speakers, if you will, to become polished and to have a presentation that's really well thought out and that is going to help advance the field, teach these people how to deliver this presentation. And then once they graduate this speakers league program, I'm calling it, I can then go out to these industry events or they can come to me and say, do you have any speakers we can bring on to bring some diversity and some, some new faces? So that's my new goal with fit to speak is I'm going to, make my staple program a 12-week intensive speaker development program for any professional that is in the fitness, sport, or health realms who wants to speak at industry events, but maybe doesn't necessarily have a presentation developed, they don't have the presentation skills, or maybe they're just simply lacking the confidence in their ability to submit a proposal to do it. 
I love that. And that is exciting because I know of a lot of people with twice the experience that I have or, or whatever it may be, people that I would love to see speaking at events. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a lot of uh, diversity that could be up on a stage. And it's just a matter of uh, giving those people a way to really showcase what they have to offer. So that's super exciting. Um, if a person was to try and track you down, how would they do so? Yes. The best place would be my website, which has all of my information on it. The website is fit hyphen to hyphen speak.com. That's F I T hyphen T O hyphen speak.com. Perfect. Um, your Instagram handle will be on the YouTube version of this episode. I'll have the website in the, the uh, show description. And so people will be able to find you and I will encourage them to do so. There's one last question that I have for you. The audience often gets posed a challenge of the day. So you get to present that challenge to them. It can be yes. anything that you like. It can be complicated. It can be simple. Whenever you're ready, all you have to do is say your challenge for the day is, and then just dish it out to them. Okay. Your challenge for the day is to work on pausing momentarily in silence at the end of each of your thoughts or sentences. I love that. That's awesome. I want to thank you, Jenny, so much for being on the show. Um, And we might have to do this again sometime. I would love that. Thanks for having me on.